because the parsha speaks about the Sanhedrin, we are going to learn about the Sanhedrin or the senior, um, the senior Jewish council, the supreme council. Just a little bit about the name. The term Sanhedrin is not Hebrew. It is Greek. Hebrew has a lot of Greek in it due to us living among Greeks for a very, very long time and under Greek rule for a very long time um, during the Second Temple period or before the Common Era. So um, because of that, we had a lot of Greek influence. At some point, the Supreme Council, which the official term for the Supreme Council is Bedin Hagadol, the Great Court. Bedin is a court. Bedin Hagadol is the Great Court. That's the official term. Throughout Scripture, it's referred to as the Zakanim, the elders. And including in this week's reading, it's referred to as the elders. Um, but later, under Greek time, it became known as the Sanhedrin, and somehow that name stuck. So Moshe convenes the first Sanhedrin on Hashem's instructions. There were 71 members of this Sanhedrin, 70 members that he appointed, that he chose, plus from the 12 tribes, six from each tribe, plus um, himself, together makes 71. And Moses himself served as the Nasi, as the president of this Sanhedrin. So they were chosen equally to represent the 12 tribes, um, including presumably the tribe of Levi. So um, there would have been corresponding to the 12 tribes. Ten tribes would have had six members, while two tribes would have had five members plus Moses. After Moses' death, we know Joshua became the leader after him. Joshua became also, in addition to being the civil leader of the people, the executive, Joshua was also the leader of the Sanhedrin, or this Supreme Council. Now, what is the role of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council? So the role of the Sanhedrin is to resolve all issues of Jewish law and Jewish practice. They are the source, as Maimonides puts it, they are the source of all of Jewish teachings. Um, they are the final arbitrators of all of Jewish law. Yes, Stephen? Do we have, do we have a record of all the heads of the Sanhedrin no. going forth from Joshua? No, but I'm going to soon go over the history of the Sanhedrin. Let's first talk about the role of the Sanhedrin. So they did this by in a number of ways. Firstly, they were in charge of retaining the oral teachings that Moses had taught them, and which was taught in academies in yeshivas um, across Israel, including a major academy where the leaders of the Sanhedrin were teachers and students. The pr- most um, the best students across Israel would flock to the central academy. And so they taught in these, or there were sometimes a few central academies, but they taught in these central academies, but they had to retain the oral teachings. And then as new situations arose, you had to apply it to new situations, apply the existing law, which is essentially what our courts do all the time, apply it to new situations. The local courts did that, but ultimately the final arbitrator when new things arose to apply it the laws to new situations was this Sanhedrin, this Supreme Council. They did this um, by um, extrapolating on the oral law. They also were able. They also were able to devise or derive new laws 
from the written word of the Torah, from the written Torah that we have, the five books of Moses, but not by reading it at face value. We have a special code that we use to study the Torah, um, known as the Shlosh Midot, the 13 attributes, and there's essentially a special code that we know to read the Torah, to be able to derive laws from the Torah. In addition, the Sanhedrin had the authority to legislate their own laws as they felt necessary. They could make their own rules, both civil rules, criminal rules, as well as ritual rules, as they feel necessary. They were allowed to legislate laws. Most laws, and we have today a lot of laws that we call rabbinic law. Rabbinic law, or in the Hebrew term is midrabanan, is or was all legislated by the Sanhedrin. Almost all laws legislated by the Sanhedrin were legislated within the first 400 years. So they're almost all over 3,000 years old, or close to 3,000 years old. So most law legislated in Judaism was from the very, very early days of Judaism. So it's not like rabbis in the last recent years decided to legislate. We don't have a Sanhedrin today, but we're going to soon talk about how it disbanded. But it was all legislated in the very early years of Judaism, but we do have a lot of rabbinic law. The Torah commands us in the book of Deuteronomy that we must listen to, uh, follow all the rulings and all the laws of the Sanhedrin. Moses commands us, whoever the leadership of the Sanhedrin, whatever the Sanhedrin decides in every generation, they are the final arbitrators. We must follow their rules. The Sanhedrin, how did the Sanhedrin decide the laws? They voted. There were 71 members with voting rights. They voted with a simple majority. Anything that a majority ruled a certain way, that was the law. In theory, a Sanhedrin could later change an existing law. Um, and we have rules to how a Sanhedrin could change a law. Uh, for the Sanhedrin to change a law, they must change it with a higher number of votes than the original law was voted in. Um, and so, so if you had a unanimous vote, you would never be able to change it. And it would also have to, the, the Sanhedrin would have to consider themselves of greater stature than the previous Sanhedrin. That was their own decision to decide. So it was with great trepidation, with great difficulty that they changed existing law. Now, every scholar had to accept whether a member of the Sanhedrin or not, had to accept the ruling of the Sanhedrin. Whether they thought the Sanhedrin was right or wrong, they had to accept the ruling of the Sanhedrin. A scholar who did not accept the ruling of the Sanhedrin um, was called a Zakein Mamre, a rebellious scholar, and was kicked out of all um, religious um, authoritative life. And there was even if he went and encouraged others to not listen to the Sanhedrin, there was even a death penalty. We know of one such Zakin Mamre um, during the days of the Second Temple, who was a, one of the greatest scholars of his day, who was Akavya ben Mahalalel, who refused to abide by the majority ruling. And he was, as a result, thrown out of all, thrown out, um, expelled from the Sanhedrin and um, excommunicated because of his refusal to accept the majority ruling. What was the thing he refused to do? Yeah. 
There were three things, and I do not recall them offhand. Sorry? I don't know. I don't know. But he did instruct his children before his death, the Mishnah tells us, don't follow my rulings, follow the majority. Now, the Sanhedrin, in addition to its responsibilities in law, was also responsible um, to oversee the service in the temple. Um, and as we'll see, they were right. They, they were their place of where they sat was in the temple. And they also were in charge of um, um, finalizing or approving Kohanic lineage to approve that people are Kohanim. The Sanhedrin also had the powers to appoint a king. Kings were appointed through the Sanhedrin. They also had war powers to go to war. You needed an approval of the Sanhedrin. Um, kings couldn't go to war on their own. The most important role, perhaps, of the Sanhedrin was affixing the Jewish calendar, as we've learned some time ago in a class about the Jewish calendar. The Jewish calendar originally was not fixed, was decided month by month. Sometimes Jewish months can have 29 days, some can have 30 days, given that the moon cycle is about 29 and a half days, and very slightly. Um, so they would fix the calendar based on sightings of the new moon every single month. In addition... Some years have 12 months, some years have 13 months in order to keep Passover consistently in the spring. And uh, the lunar year with, with 12 months would have an average of 254 days, with 13 months will have an average of 284 days. So in order to keep it 365 days and keep it in line, every couple years we would have a leap year. And creating that leap year, that extra month, was also the role of the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin needed to always be active and needed to convene minimum once a month just to, um, to set the new month. Now, the Sanhedrin did not actually have... Um, Control of the day-to-day -day operations in the temple. Control of the day-to-day -day operations was controlled by the Kohanim. Um, the day-to-day -day operations and the treasury of the temple, the funding of the temple, including the administrating the city of Jerusalem, was all controlled by the Kohanim, who were led by a Kohen Gadol, by a high priest. They had their own leadership structure. They were totally independent of the Sanhedrin. They also had their own court of Kohanim, what's called the Bezdin Shal Kohanim, a court of Kohanim that ruled made the rulings as to which, who, was, who was fit to serve in the temple and who was fit as Kohanim, and they made all rulings with regard to the Kohanim. The Sanhedrin just had supervision over them, but the actual running of the day-to-day -day in the temple was in the hands of the Kohanim. There were some high priests that served also as the leader of the... Um, there were some high priests that served also as the leader of the Sanhedrin. Most notable was someone called Shimon Hatzadik, who was both high priest and leader of the Sanhedrin, though it appears to have been fairly rare. Um, in addition, the Sanhedrin did not have any executive governing role over the Jewish people. They were not involved in the executive governing at all. They were only a legislative body. Now, there were, in over our history, a handful of individuals that served both as the leadership of the Sanhedrin and doubled as an, in an executive role. Um, most notably, the first two leaders of the Sanhedrin were also executives. Moses right, was the executive leader of the Jewish people, in addition to being the religious authority. Um, and the other, the other one was Joshua, his um, disciple. 
Many years later, the prophet Samuel also serves both as a leader of the Sanhedrin as well as in the executive role. Um, there is one source in the Talmud that suggests that the King Samuel, King Saul, sorry, the first king also had a role in the Sanhedrin in addition to his executive role as king. Um, at a later point, um, it was made, they made an official rule that executives could not be members of the Sanhedrin at all to separate those powers as an official rule. Now, how was the Sanhedrin structured? What did it look? So that's the role of the Sanhedrin. That was the power of the Sanhedrin. How, lo- how was this Sanhedrin actually built? So we said earlier the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council, had 71 senior members. It appears from the Talmud that they were self-selected. In other words, they voted in their own members. It was not a democracy. Um, they voted in their own members. Um, the members of the Sanhedrin voted in other members of the Sanhedrin. It doesn't appear the king or executive had any authority to appoint members of the Sanhedrin whatsoever. Um, they vote in their own members. Um, it's unclear. We know the very first Sanhedrin, as we mentioned, was representative of the 12 tribes with an equal number of members representing each tribe. We don't know later if that practice continued, where they were representative of the different tribes or not. We don't know. Um, We don't have any record to tell us one way or another. Or if later, when Israel moved from being tribal to being more regional based, um, whether it became they had regional representatives or not. Again, we don't know. We don't have any evidence one way or another. the Sanhedrin had 200, and in addition to its 71 senior members, there were also junior members. Um, in later times, while well, there was no official number that there had to be for junior members, in later times during the Second Temple period and beyond, there were 213 junior members of the Sanhedrin. The junior members were able to partake in discussions, but they didn't have any voting rights. Only 71 members with voting rights but there were 200, as many as 213, which is 71 times 3, um, members with uh, junior members that could participate in the discussion. So the discussions of the Sanhedrin were very, very large, um, with a lot of people involved, um, although only 71 members were actually able to vote. When a senior member was absent, you always needed 71 voting members whenever they took a vote. Um, If a senior member of the Sanhedrin was absent, then they would bring a junior member and make them a senior member temporarily in order to make up the quorum of 71 to vote. Yes, let's do one time. Elise. We don't know. We don't know. We're not told how the... We, we, have, we have very little information about how the, um, how the Sanhedrin was chosen. We know it was chosen by the leadership of the... by the Sanhedrin itself from members of other Sanhedrins that I'm going to talk... smaller Sanhedrins. Um, and so were the junior membership. Um, who chose them and how they were exactly how they were chosen in the process? We're not given any information. We have no source that tells us anything about it. Were yes, the junior don't. members aligned with the senior member? Each one having three people underneath them as a coalition, or, or was it just completely separate? 
I don't know. Um, it appears to have been separate. Um, now, in addition to the Sanhedrin, or alongside the Sanhedrin were yeshivas, or schools. We know in Jerusalem, um, there were in the later period in Jerusalem, there were two great schools, that of Shammai and Hillel, two very famous schools. Um, later, um, in Yavna, there was a single academy, um, but there were other academies in other towns. Um, there were a lot of schools, and often leaders, of, members of the Sanhedrin often led their own schools as well. Um, chances are that their own students would have been members of the Sanhedrin often. Um, we know for certain that leadership of schools attempted to bring their own disciples into the Sanhedrin um, because they wanted their people in there. Um, we know also that uh, there was w- one short period that the Sanhedrin was destroyed and taken over by Sadducees, and then there was a fight to bring back mm-hmm. traditional um, Jews to the tra- traditional leaders of the Sanhedrin. Um, but there were um, most definitely the students would have been members, or the junior members would have been students in these academies, or teachers in these academies. Um, and they, there definitely were disagreements or, uh, or I wouldn't say parties, but there were groups b- b- built on schools. Um, they, were, you know, kind of, they were structured by school. Um, so if you were part of a different school, you often had a different way of study, different approach to study, different approach to different laws. Um, so there were definitely differences based on schools. So now there always had to be at least 23 members for any discussion, a quorum of 23 members. Not all 71 members had to be there for a discussion, but at least there had to be a quorum of 23 any time just to have a discussion. Um, now, um, in biblical times, the, leader, the um, heads of the Sanhedrin were called, well, the head of the Sanhedrin was called the Sofer, and the members of the Sanhedrin were called Sofrim, or sometimes they're called, which means scribe or scribes. Um, the Talmud says it could also mean the word sofer could also mean count. They counted. Um, and that term, the Talmud says, was because they counted the wording of the Torah. Um, they counted the words. In other words, they looked at every single word and letter to decipher the code. They were experts at deciphering the code that we had mentioned earlier to derive laws from the Torah. Um, they're also sometimes called Zakanim, as they are in the Torah itself. They're called elders. Um, later, the head of the Sanhedrin became, was, uh, was called the Nasi, or the president. And um, no vote could be made without the head of the Sanhedrin present. Um, so the San, head of the Sanhedrin had to be there for any vote. The president, the deputy of the Sanhedrin, was called, always had a deputy um, throughout history, and the deputy was called the Av Betin, or the father, the um, counselor of the Bet Din. Um, later, in later periods, they had a second deputy who was called the Chacham, or the wise one. Um, now, after the temple was built in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin sat just outside the temple courtyard, near the altar, in a room called Lishkat Hagazit, which means the room of hewn stone. Um, and they sat in a, they, the Sanhedrin always sat in a semicircle where every member of the Sanhedrin could see every other member. So they sat, the 71 people. So it would be a fairly large room. 
in a fairly large semicircle. Um, and they could also see anyone giving testimony would stand in front of the semicircle. All 71 members could see them. The junior members sat facing the senior members in three rows of semicircles in the same way. So there were three semicircles, one behind the other. It would have had to have been a very large room to hold that number of people all seated. And um, they must have had good acoustics for everyone to be able to hear each other. Um, not hard to see how they did it. They probably, many buildings in those days had domes. If they had, if the building itself was a dome, it would have been fairly easy to hear from one end to another, so long as everyone was quiet when other people were talking. Um, so um, now, in addition to the Supreme Council, the Sanhedrin Hagadol, the Great Sanhedrin, or um, the Beddin Hagadol, as it was called, there were also junior councils. There were Sanhedrin Tana, they were called, small councils. And they were originally set up in each tribe. Moses set up a small council for each tribe. The council had 23 members. There was also an additional small council, Sanhedrin Tana, that served as a gate that sat alongside the Sanhedrin Gedola, the great Sanhedrin, and served as gatekeepers for the Sanhedrin Gedola. So essentially, if there was an issue that had to be resolved, it would first go to the local courts. The local courts, the local Sanhedrin of 23 members, could decide the issue on their own, or could choose to send it on to the Sanhedrin Gdola. But before it got to the Supreme Council, it first came to the Junior Council that sat alongside the Supreme Council that judged whether it should, whether they could resolve it themselves or whether it was necessary to go on to the Supreme Council. We have a similar system in our Supreme Court where there's this group of three judges of the Supreme Court that decide which cases should actually be heard, right? So not every case actually made it to the Sanhedrin Dola. At first, there was this gatekeeping Sanhedrin before it. Later, um, following the Assyrian conquest, the Assyrian conquest made some huge change. It was the first major conquest of Israel. Um, the northern Israel was captured. Much of many Jews were exiled. Many non-Jews were brought to Israel. Um, the um, kingdom that had been divided for um, some 200 years was united under King Hezekiah following the Assyrian conquest. Um, we're talking about in the 500s BCE or um, 500s or 600 BCE. Um, so following the Assyrian conquest, Israel was no longer tribal. Many members of the smaller tribes had been exiled. Um, Judah became by far the dominant tribe. Jews moved around to take lands with people that had been exiled. And so, um, and so uh, people that were exiled came back and settled in different lands. And Jews lost, we lost our tribal affiliation, our tribal identity. What year was this again? 600 BC. A little after 600 BC. Sorry? When they came back, well, the the conquest was a gradual thing that came in a couple stages, and then the Syrians fell at the gates of Jerusalem. Story of its own, um, which I think I don't know if we've told in the Sunday morning class. We've told in some of our other classes. Uh, one of the uh, most amazing stories in Jewish history. Uh, but the Syrian army fell at the gates of Jerusalem, and 
Hezekiah, the king Hezekiah, Hezekiah expanded his reign over all of Israel. And many of the exiles came back. And so, but Israel lost, at that point, Israel lost its tribal identity. Um, we no longer, all, all of Israel became, became Judea, um, Yehuda. And um, we became known possibly at that point as Jews. And um, it's one of two possible sources for our term Jews. The other is, it means believers. That in Babylon they called us Jews as believers. But either way, we were, it was called Yehuda. And um, we lost our tribal affiliation. At that point, um, the uh, Jewish structure became regional. In other words, rather than focusing on people's tribal membership, it was more based on by region. And then the, they still had Sanhedric Tana, which continued throughout the Second Temple period. Um, but the Sanhedric Tana were all in the larger cities, and they were more regional. So, but we still had these Sanhedrins. Were they determined along the previous tribal lines, even though the tribes weren't there? I don't know. I don't know. We're not given much detail about the regions. Uh, we don't. Ha- we don't know. We we really don't know much detail. Yes. Whether the regions were determined along the original tribal zones, um, I don't know. I don't think so, but I don't know. I mean, I really don't. The truth is, I don't know at all. I don't think we have any source that I'm aware of to tell us one way or another. Um, we know very little about the Jewish government structure. Um, so we don't know. We know it was regional. Um, it may have followed um, civil leadership, which remember once Israel was captured in about 420, 421 BC, I think is the exact year, um, according to our tradition. Now, once Israel was captured by the, um, by the Babylonians, we really didn't have any independence. And the executive leadership, the civil leadership, was not Jewish at all. Or even if it was Jewish, it was Jewish under non-Jewish rule. So we didn't have a Jewish... That was later, yeah. Oh, from in the days of King Chizkiah, we really don't know. Did these councils punish the individuals who committed crimes within their region? Yes and no. There were small bateidin courts throughout, and all the towns had small courts. Courts only needed three members that ruled on civil litigation and ruled on criminal law. You needed a Sanhedrin, a 23-member council, in order to inflict capital punishment. And we have a class coming up in a couple weeks on the topic of capital punishment. And um, capital punishment was needed a Supreme Council to inflict, and it was very rare. So they did judge capital punishment. There were a couple other complex laws that they would had to be litigated in Sanhedrin's. Um, Serious laws, very big issues, including judging the king, judging the high priest. Um, if there was a case involving the king or the high priest, a criminal case involving the king and the high priest, as well as um, as well as cases involving um, whole cities um, or tribes. Um, were all litigated by the Supreme Councils. So very serious cases were litigated by more Supreme Councils, but small, you know, interpersonal issues or small crimes were dealt with locally in local towns. When you say Supreme Councils, do you mean the Supreme Council or you mean regional Supreme Councils? Both. Capital punishment was in regional Supreme Councils 
um, the big national issues were done in the the Supreme Council in the Sanhedrin Agadol. So what happened with this? Now that we've learned about what they do and who they are, what exactly is the history of this Sanhedrin? So the history of the Sanhedrin is quite fascinating. It starts with Moses. Moses called together the elders in this week's Torah reading. Um, just about a year after Sinai, he convenes this first council after he wanted to resign. And this first council had 71 members. We don't know the names. The Torah does not give us the names of any of the members of the council. Um, it's unclear who were members. Um, we don't even know if Aaron was a member of the council or not. We know Joshua would have been a member of the council because he succeeded Moses. At least at some point he became a member. Um, but we don't know who was a member of this Sanhedrin. After Moses' death, Joshua became the head of the Sanhedrin. Um, it appeared, and he, um, Joshua became the head of the Sanhedrin, and he led the Sanhedrin from Gilgal, which was the first place where they encamped after they crossed the Jordan River. Um, and then the Sanhedrin appears to have moved around for the next couple hundred years. The next couple hundred years after Joshua is known as the period of Judges. And we only have one book in scripture that tells us about the period of Judges and very, very little historical information about that period. So we really don't know very much about the Sanhedrin during this period um, of Judges. At the end of the Judges period, um, it seems that Shmuel, or we know that Shmuel, the prophet Samuel, was the leader of the Sanhedrin, in addition to being the civil leader of all of Israel. In those days, tribes were really just a confederation. There was no real, it wasn't really a country, it was just a confederation of tribes. But it was led by the prophet Samuel, who appears, due to the great respect for him, to have greater power, much more than what other um, leaders had had previously and Shmuel Samuel leads the Sanhedrin we know Samuel was based in Ramah which is just north of Jerusalem where Samuel is buried or um, just south of modern day Ramallah and Ramallah almost certainly is the original Ramah where Samuel was yes I have a question with regards to Samuel we know Samuel well as is a prophet and we know he anointed the first two kings. Mm -hmm. So the question is, you also said that Sanhedrin is involved with the anointing of the kings. So was he doing something representing the Sanhedrin in his capacity as a prophet, a unique for those two kings, and it was different afterwards? How does that work? I don't know. I don't know. It appears that Samuel's anointing of the first two kings was with prophecy. So I don't know if he would have required the Sanhedrin or not. Okay. That's a good question. I do not know. So anyway, later after Samuel's death, um, eventually it moves. David soon becomes king and moves the moves uh, moves the center of Israel, the administrative capital, to Jerusalem. Jerusalem becomes the center. Later, Solomon's going to build the temple there. The Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council, moves to Jerusalem. When the temple is built, it moves into the temple just outside the temple courtyard. It was there was a part of the room of hewn stone, the Shkat Hagazit, actually was inside the temple courtyard. So it was kind of within the walls. It was the it was there was a break in the walls where this room of hewn stone was. The Shkat Hagazit was it was a stone room. Um, part of the room was inside the walls of the temple courtyard. Most of the room was outside. Part of the room needed to be inside for sacrifices of Kohanim that needed to be um, 
to convene with the Sanhedrin and could not leave the temple courtyard during the service. Um, but the, the members actually sat outside because it's forbidden to sit inside the temple courtyard. So they sat in the part that was outside the temple courtyard. Um, the Sanhedrin continues for the 410 years that the first temple stood. They sat within the temple. Um, throughout scripture, we are given very often the names of different sofrim or different leaders of the Sanhedrin, starting from the days of King David, going through the days of Yoash, Chizkiyahu, um, and throughout the different periods, we have the names of the different Sofrim, the different leaders of the Sanhedrin. The final uh, leader of the Sanhedrin in Israel is the prophet Jeremiah, Yirmiyahu. He's the leader of the final, final Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Um, before the destruction of the temple, there is an exile where all the members of the Sanhedrin, save Jeremiah, um, are, um, are brought, are exiled to Babylon together with most of the Jewish leadership. It appears the Sanhedrin from that point on reconvened in um, Babylon and would have temporarily appointed a new head of the Sanhedrin since Jeremiah remained in Israel. Um, and uh, at the time, later all of Israel, the temple was destroyed, all of Israel was exiled, um, along with Jeremiah's chief disciple, Baruch ben Neria HaSofer. And Baruch ben Neria becomes the leader of the Sanhedrin in Babylon. In Babylon, they presumably, can, they built a Jewish administrative capital, and some years later, after the death of King Nebuchadnezzar, the, one of the last kings who had been imprisoned in Babylon, Yehoiakim, is appointed as the prince of the Jews, the Reish Geluta, and Jews um, essentially build an independent or an um, autonomous state along the Euphrates and Tigris rivers in Babylon. And so the, um, built around the town of Nahardaa. And so presumably um, the Sanhedrin sat in Nahardaa. In fact, in Nahardaa, we're told we have a number of sources for this. There was a synagogue called Shafviyativ. And the synagogue of Shafviyativ was built with stones that the exilees had brought with them from Jerusalem and appears to have been the center, the religious center of Jews in Babylon. So now Baruch ben Neriah um, led the Sanhedrin for the entire 70 years while the Jews were exiled in Babylon. We know that he died after he lived for a very, very long time. He must have. He was ordained in Israel before he left Israel and was a prophet of the king Jer- of the prophet, uh, a disciple of the prophet Jeremiah. And so he must have lived, and he lived. He was a leader of Sanhedrin for more than 70 years, and so he must have lived. Till close to 100, at least. He lived a very, very long life. And um, when Baruch ben Neriah dies, a couple years after the second temple was already rebuilt in Jerusalem, his disciple was Ezra. Now remember, the next generation of um, scholars were not ordained because you could not ordain scholars outside of Israel. So they went back to Israel following the death of Baruch. Ezra and all of the Jewish scholars, together with it appears 
there was still, the Sanhedrin was still convening and there were still ordained members at this point. Perhaps some had gone to Israel, got an ordained and come back. So Ezra, together with the members of the Sanhedrin or the Jewish leaders at the time, all went and together with tens of thousands of other Jews, moved to Israel and they moved to Jerusalem and the Sanhedrin in the center of Judaism now moved back to Jerusalem with Ezra Hasofer, Ezra the scribe, Ezra's Sanhedrin supreme council is referred, often called Anshei Knesset Hagadola, the men of the great gathering. And that's because of the great gathering that his, um, of when they gathered back in Israel. And Ezra led the Sanhedrin. Ezra led the Sanhedrin. For Ezra led the Ezra led the Sanhedrin for some thirty-six years until sorry thirty-four years until um, the he died just before the Greek conquest in three twelve BC. Yes. It's not clear to me how the how the um, ordination continued because you said it couldn't take place while they were in exile and then basically the person who lived 100 years, he died and you couldn't ordain in exile. So how did they do it? There were, or, there were people who had been ordained in Israel before the destruction that were still alive. That means they're over 100. They are in their 90s, yeah. A couple old people. That's all you need. Okay. So yes, but it was um, exactly how they kept the quorum of seventy-one, having seventy-one people that were ordained. I don't know, um, but they may have had. They may have been. I mean, remember in the days while there, there were at any given point there were probably thousands of ordained, or if not tens of thousands of ordained people. But they, they, didn't they, have they to may be have still been. It was it had to have been functional every month to keep the calendar going. It was always functional. So you're saying there were two? Sorry? There was one in Babylon and one in Israel? Simon? No, there was, it was always in Babylon. No, I'm talking about one in Israel was not working during that time. There was none in Israel. So just remaining people who had the ordination. Yes, people lived who had been ordained. And um, it says clearly in the book of Ezra there were people still alive that had lived in the days of the first temple and remembered the first temple. So Ezra dies just before the Greek conquest in 312 BCE, and he's succeeded by Shimon Hatzadik, who we mentioned earlier was doubled both as high priest and as leader of the Sanhedrin. Um, the Sanhedrin leadership, um, the Sanhedrin continues throughout the Greek period, throughout the Hash, um, then the, the, there was a very short period when Judaism was outlawed. Um, before the Hanukkah rebellion by the Maccabees, but it was quickly restored. The whole period was about four or five years, wasn't very long. Um, later, a grandson of the Maccabees, um, King Yanai, um, gets into a fight with the Sanhedrin. Um, he was disqualified to serve as a Kohen, and the Sanhedrin would not allow him to serve as a high priest, even though his the previous Maccabean Leadership had been high priests. He's upset at the Sanhedrin. He decides to convert to a cult um, of another um, kind of breakaway of Judaism that was gaining popularity at the time called Tzidukim Sadducee. And he goes ahead and kills out the entire Sanhedrin, save 
the um, vice president of the Sanhedrin, who happened to be his brother-in-law, Shimon ben Shatach. Many members of the Sanhedrin managed to flee, fled to Egypt, um, and he filled, he, re, he filled the Sanhedrin with Sadducees, um, and this lasted until his death a couple of years later, after which his wife became queen. His wife, um, his wife um, whose, whose name was Shlomit Alexandra, uh, this queen Shlomit Alexandra brought back her brother, Shimon ben Shatach, um, into the Sanhedrin, and Yehuda ben Tabai, the former president who had been hiding in Egypt and who had escaped to Egypt, and they reconvened the original, uh, they reconvened the Sanhedrin. Um, now, the Sanhedrin then continued till around the year 30, um, uh, in a, sorry, in around the year 50 BCE, um, before the Common Era. This is around the period of Herod. I'm sorry, what's the name of the guy who killed everybody else? Yanai. Yanai. Okay. Um, around the year um, 50 BCE, just before Herod um, became king, um, Hillel. Um, who was a Babylonian, becomes president of the Sanhedrin. After Hillel's death, they decided that the presidency of the Sanhedrin will remain with Hillel's grandchildren. So Hillel's paternal line, his sons, um, retained the presidency, the role of president of the Sanhedrin for the next 300 years. Um, Not long after Hillel or... Rabbi, why did they decide that? Sorry? Why did they decide that after thousands of years that that's going to be worth it? It's unclear why, but this next story may be part of the reason. Not right after appears to have been right after Hillel's death. Herod was also upset at the Sanhedrin, and Herod himself decided to kill out all the members of the Sanhedrin, and he killed all members of the Sanhedrin, save one, Bava ben Buta, and sorry. There was a lot of killing. Yes, yes. Herod did a lot of killing. Herod was a one of the worst tyrants ever. He did a lot of killing. Very bad person. So, um, so the Sanhedrin was killed out. Um, but later, their students reconvened. Um, Herod later allowed the Sanhedrin to reconvene, and so. Um, so perhaps that's the reason why they decided that there should be more stability in the Sanhedrin due to the instability that there had been. Um, around the year 30 of the Common Era, um, around this is, by this time, Rome has taken control of Israel. Um, is, is, Judea is now a Roman province. Um, there was a lot of instability because the Roman governors, a lot of them were um, tyrants and um, were very um, caused a lot of trouble for the Jewish people, um, and so and there was there were a lot of rebels that were fighting back against the Romans. So around the year thirty, um, there was because of all the instability, there, were, there was also a lot of crime, including a lot of murder. And according to Jewish teachings, we're going to do a, a class on capital punishment in a couple of weeks. But according to Jewish teachings, um, capital punishment should we believe in capital punishment? But it's supposed to be very very rare. But with a lot of murder, capital punishment, the need to enforce capital punishment was not so rare anymore. So the Sanhedrin decided to end capital punishment. In order to end capital punishment, capital punishment ends if the Sanhedrin are not in their official spot. If they're not convening in their official place, then capital punishment is not allowed to be inflicted anywhere in the land of Israel. 
So the Sanhedrin moved out of the Lishkat HaGazit, out of the Room of Hewn Stone, and moved um, out uh, to elsewhere in Jerusalem, first elsewhere on the Temple Mount, then elsewhere in Jerusalem, um, con- continued convening in Jerusalem, but not in their main room, and they, with that they ended capital punishment. Um, during the siege of Jerusalem, which was between 66 and 70 um, of the Common Era, um, at the end of which the temple was destroyed. During the great siege, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was the leader of, um, who, he was not a grandson of Hillel, but he became leader after Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, the um, president, was killed by the Romans. Um, he became leader, and he um, convinced, he smugged himself outside the city of Jerusalem, story of its own that I think I've told before, um, and he um, convinced the emperor Vespasian to allow the Sanhedrin to escape to the town of Yavne, where there was an academy, or there was a yeshiva already. The Sanhedrin escaped, and following the war, reconvened in Yavne. Um, and uh, the Sanhedrin continues. They then moved around um, for the next 150 years or so, and in, there was a lot of trouble. The Romans, um, the, after the f- second rebellion, the rebellion of Bar Koziba, that ended in about 135, the Romans instituted a policy for a number of years of destroying Judaism, including, and that was killing out most of the members of the Sanhedrin and really any rabbi they could find. Famously, Rabbi Akiva was killed then. Many other scholars were killed then. Um, many young scholars went into hiding. Many scholars went into hiding. And um, this lasted for a number of years, for about 15 years. And um, during this period, the Sanhedrin was not able to convene at all. It did. They did temporarily convene outside of Israel um, in order to create the months and in order to keep the calendar running. And, um, and, when, and they only reconvened later in Usha, after a number of years of um, absence. In the, by the early 200s, the Sanhedrin had come to Tiberias, had ended up in Tiberias, uh, Tiberias or Tveria. Um, now, by the early 200s, life for Jews in Israel was becoming very difficult under Roman rule, especially as Christians were gaining power in Israel and gaining popularity. And the yeshiva dwindled. Many, many scholars moved to Babylon which was, had a thriving, successful Jewish community. Um, by the early 200s, the Sanhedrin was reduced from making general rulings and deciding all of Jewish law and being the supreme council of all of Israel, really was reduced to mostly to making the calendar. They convened monthly for the calendar, and that was really their main role. And they continued doing this for about 100 years or so until the year 358. In 358, the president of the Sanhedrin at this point was, his name was Hillel, same as his ancestor Hillel. And at this point, there was a lot of, Rome had already adapted Christianity, Jews had already long been forbidden from living in Jerusalem, already from the, one, already from the early 100s. Um, Jews in Israel were under a lot of persecution from the church, which was effectively rulers of Israel under Roman rule, under Byzantine rule. And um, at this point, the decision was made, it had become so hard to convene uh, enough members monthly, and you only need three members to make a... Uh, to declare the new month. And it had been so hard to do and to keep it running that Hillel decided um, that Hillel decided that they would um, that they would disband the Sanhedrin once and for all. And before he did that, he created a permanent calendar or a calendar that goes at least till the year 6,000. 
and um, he set this calendar in place. We once did a class on how the calendar is structured, and we had that calendar. Uh, we still have that calendar today. And with that, in 358, the Sanhedrin was officially disbanded. Now, can we ever recreate the Sanhedrin? The problem with recreating the Sanhedrin is we need to have smicha, we need to have ordination. Ordination can, real ordination can only be given in the land of Israel. So, um, so with the disbanding of the Sanhedrin, we also ended smicha, we ended ordination. There cannot be any Sanhedrin given anymore. Maimonides, however, the Rambam, um, in a very unusual ruling, um, said that he believes, and this, he was the originator of this concept, um, that he believes that since at some point the Sanhedrin is going to have to reconvene, there must be a way to recreate the Sanhedrin. And he says the way to do that, if all the scholars of Israel come together and all decide to recreate the Sanhedrin, with consensus, we can recreate the Sanhedrin. So, um, yes? Pass on from generation to generation. Yes. So he says we could all reconvene and we could re-bestow smicha on someone and re- make someone a rabbi and recreate the Sanhedrin. Um, this was attempted by a rabbi called Rabbi Yaakov Beirav. And we did a class, a Wednesday class on it a couple months ago um, in our great debates course. This was attempted by a rabbi called Rabbi Yaakov Beirav in the 1500s. He was a rabbi in Sfad and he attempted, convened all the rabbis of Sfad to... Um, and to recreate the Sanhedrin, um, and they ordained him, and he in turn ordained a number of other individuals, a number of his disciples. Uh, however, the chief rabbi of Jerusalem at the time, this is in the 1500s again, early 1500s, the chief rabbi of Jerusalem at the time, Rabbi Levi ben Chaviv, um, refused to go along with it. Um, he believed that it was misguided, and he said, regardless, you don't have consensus because I'm not with you and so the Sanhedrin did not end up being created in more recent years there have been attempts in Israel to recreate the Sanhedrin to ever get consensus among all Jews is virtually impossible so it has not happened Uh, although there was especially with the creation of the modern state of Israel there was a very strong movement to reconvene the Sanhedrin most notably the first um, the first religion minister of Israel Rabbi Yehuda Leib Maimon was um, uh, worked very hard to try to convince people to create a consensus to recreate the Sanhedrin and wrote a book about it. And um, he even at this, uh, the, he the, he famously once when someone asked him, "How are you going to to be a member of the Sanhedrin? You must um, dislike um, you uh, you must be free of any corruption, and you must be so nebetsa, which means you're not into money at all." And they asked him, how are you going to find 71 people that are not into money? And so he famously quipped, for the right price, he could get anything. Well, yeah. So, um, so anyway, the Sanhedrin has not been convened. But we do believe when Mashiach comes, we will convene, reconvene this Supreme Council.